Hi everyone, welcome to this encore edition of my interview with thought leader and absolute legend when it comes to retailing, Jim Inglis. Now Jim is the author of Breakthrough Retailing, has significant experience with Home Depot and consulting with companies across the world on how to achieve breakthroughs in retailing, how to revitalize retailing. And this was an excellent episode. It was much loved on my previous show, The 1% Difference. And so I'm bringing it to you here today for Chats with Jason. Hope you enjoy the episode. And as always, support the show by giving it a like, sharing it, and of course, by picking up a copy of the author's book. Hey everyone, welcome to the 1% Difference show with me, your host, Jason S. Bradshaw. The 1% Difference show is here for you to help you stand out and succeed. A 1% extra focus on customer experience, employee experience, brand experience, product experience, your business, your life, your career is all the difference it takes. Joining us today is Jim Inglis, author of Breakthrough Retailing. Jim is a world-renowned expert with 60 years experience in the retail home improvement industry. He's served in executive positions with the Home Depot for 13 years and, and is currently the president of Inglis Retailing. Jim has helped shape the industry worldwide as a special advisor to the boards of leading home improvement uh, home improvement retailers across the globe and in 2015 was honored with the lifetime achievement award from the global home improvement network and the european do it diy retail association inglis is also the author of the newly released book breakthrough retailing how a bleeding orange culture can change everything jim thank you so much for being part of the one percent different show thank you jason glad to be here so jim breakthrough retailing uh what led you to write the book well it, as you mentioned in the introduction for the last 20 years i have uh, made a career of traveling the world and working with home centers all around the world uh, building material retailers and uh, working primarily with their middle management uh, educating them on what are the principles of a high productivity retailing. And uh, at, at the end of every one of those classes, I had so many of them come up and say, you ought to write a book, you ought to write a book. And I thought, well, you know, uh, someday I might do that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I would, I would write a few, uh, a few uh, uh, paragraphs in uh, the first chapter and then kind of put it on the side for a while. But then when COVID came along, it gave me a chance to really stop traveling around the world and really focus on, um, hey, this might be a, be a good idea. So I basically, the, the, the book has got two sections. Uh, one section, the first section of the book, is the history of Home Depot. And of course, as I went around the world, there's incredible interest in why is Home Depot the largest home center in the world? What, how, how did Home Depot change the whole industry? Um, you know, what, uh, what is that magic difference that makes them so much bigger and so much more profitable than anyone else in the industry? So, so that's the first half of the book. And, and then the second half of the book is really the, the principles um, that, uh, that you can learn from observing what happened at Home Depot. And essentially, uh, those are the, the each, what I've done is, is uh, 
is list those into 10 principles. And each of those principles is a chapter in the book. So the first half of the book is basically a history book. And the second half of the book is, is basically a textbook. Um, and like I say, I, I, I wrote it uh, really because I had so many suggestions that, uh, that uh, people would like to know more about the Home Depot. And, um, and knowing that, um, that those principles um, could help a lot of retailers. And, you know, there's a, there's a I, I, I heard somewhere that, you know, uh, people die, but words live on. And so uh, to me, it was sort of a legacy thing to say, let's, let's, let's take all of these notes, all of this learning that I've done over the 60 years and try to put it into, uh, into a book. And as a result, it's a very thick book. It's uh, 417 pages, I believe. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a heavy book, uh, but it's really two books in one. Look, look, uh, it might be 400 uh, plus pages, but, uh, and I know you referred to as part of the book being a textbook, but for our listeners, I cannot recommend this book enough. It is a, such a great read and it clearly comes from a place of passion and experience within the Home Depot world and, of course, the work that you've done through English retailing, working with, with other organizations around the world. Uh, uh, within the book, there's, there's as you mentioned, the, the two sections and then that's broken down into to four parts and then each of the chapters. One of uh, the, the chapters that you talk about is building a winning culture at Home Depot. How, how important is culture in business? Well, as, as you know, the, the book is called uh, Breakthrough Retailing, but the subtitle is, you know, how a bleeding orange culture can change everything. And so the real point of the book is that uh, culture can change everything. Um, you know, there's a uh, uh, saying by uh, uh, Peter Drucker that said, you know, culture drives performance. And that is uh, really the essence of the book. In fact, it's the last chapter in my book, uh, mm -hmm. is that culture does drive performance. Uh, at uh, Home Depot, we had a unique uh, culture. It's interesting that um, as Home Depot uh, grew and started going across the country, uh, there were, at the time uh, of the first year, which is 1980, as the first full year of Home Depot, there were 32 home center chains in the United States. And as we went into each of those markets, all 32 of those companies went out of business, except about six of them said, well, we'll invest more money and we'll compete against Home Depot. And so they too opened big box stores. They opened big box stores. They copied our merchandise. They even copied our pricing, but they failed. And the reason they failed is they didn't have the secret sauce. They didn't have the magic elixir, which of course was the Home Depot people. And those Home Depot pe people had that unique bleeding orange culture. Mm. And so so culture obviously plays a part in, in the business. It, it, you know, it, it is relatively easy, some would say relatively easy to create a culture when you are only one or two stores. How, how do you, how do you keep that, that bleeding orange culture you know, as Home Depot expands to the largest uh, home retailing business in the yeah. world? Well, you know, the way it worked at, at, at Depot is, uh, first of all, uh, every company is a shadow of the people at the top. 
the person at the top. And the, uh, the culture at Home Depot was a, a servant leadership. And that servant leadership created a bleeding orange culture, which was um, a culture of decentralization and delegation. In other words, pushing decisions down and out into the, into the organization. And this requires that you, that you empower these people. Uh, and in turn, they have to take ownership. They have to take an ownership in that, in that, uh, in that empowerment. And that ownership is taking ownership of the mission. And uh, once, they once they grasp hold of that mission and they see that that mission is something bigger than themselves, it's something that they uh, buy into, uh, then you, you, you really can um, delegate. You really can push those decisions out. Of course, you have to educate your people and you have to educate them not just in how to do the job, but why. Why do we have these principles? Why do we behave this way? Because if they understand the why, they're going to make good decisions. Um, and, you know, may, they, may not, they may not be perfect, but, but they'll make enough good decisions and they will be, you know, when, you, when you've got 2,000 stores, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on out there. There's a lot of, uh, of issues that have to be addressed in order to be customer focused, in order to stay focused on your customer and to respond to that customer. And you need people who have taken that ownership, who understand the mission, who understand the why of the mission, and, and know that they're empowered to, to solve that customer's problem or to create the new opportunity for that customer. And, and so uh, the key to growing to 2,000 stores uh, is, in fact, that whole idea of pushing decisions down and out and creating an ownership culture in the company. So there is a lot of conversation around the Home Depot customer experience. You, you talk about uh, the uh, ladies and gentlemen that work at Home Depot being absolutely fanatical about serving the customer. Yet, you know, like any business, I'm sure you, you had staff turnover, you had you know, location challenges from time to time. How did you keep people focused on caring about the customer despite what might be happening behind the scenes? Well, as people interact with the customers, they're going to have success stories. And it's so important to recognize those success stories and to reward those success stories. People, people need to work for money because they, they need an income, but that's not the only reason people work. And that's not the only pe reason people stay where they work because money alone will not create loyalty with the customer. What, what will create loyalty is buying into the vision, buying into the mission. And people want to be part of something successful. They want to be part of something good. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And so it's very important that management recognize not only that the customer, that the employees and the associates uh, need to have a good wage and, and, and not a minimum wage. Heaven, heavens forbid that we would pay a minimum wage, but pay a, a, a above minimum wage, above the market wage, but also make sure that there's that emotional reward. And this happens by, by, by recognizing and celebrating and creating these stories 
and and then as management repeating those stories and telling those stories over and over so that they become part of the fabric of the company and 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 that's how people uh become part of this like you say fanatical group it's it it was it was very much uh like a like a, you could go to a home depot uh store meeting and you would think you might be in a religious meeting uh and uh, because um, it's 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 pretty emotional uh and it's because people believe and and they bought into the stories mm. uh, I, I love that uh reminding us that employees work for us for more than just the paycheck it's it's obviously a starting point but uh, they don't stick around for that they can always find a, a page paycheck somewhere else so you know what strikes me about the home depot story uh is that this growth over the last you know, 40 odd years ha has had to endure some significant changes in retail you know as as Home Depot rolled out store after store, you know, e-commerce became a thing. And there was, you know, we, we've all heard the stories of many major brands struggling uh, with uh, the competition that e-commerce has bought and, and the likes of Amazon. Um, and, and I'm not not by any stretch of the imagination trying to beat up on those disruptions. And, and Amazon's done some amazing things for people. But how did Home Depot continue to stay relevant and customer obsessed despite all these new new challenges in the marketplace yeah well you know speaking of of amazon you know home depot today is a brick and mortar store but in the united states they are also the fifth largest e-commerce retailer and uh, forbes magazine just did a survey and mentioned in their survey not only it's number five in sales but it's number one in trust so um uh, Depot clearly has made that transition from uh, a brick and mortar company to an inter interconnected uh, omni-channel retailer. Uh, but there's other changes that are equally big. You know, if you think, if you look at back when Home Depot started in 1980, um, it was the, the target customer was, was the DIY customer. It was pure DIY. Um, today, um, Home Depot says that 4% of their customers provide 45% of their business, and that's the pro customer. That's the customer who's doing repair and remodel. Well, what has happened over this period of time? Uh, the people who were the do-it-yourselfers 40 years ago, when they were 20, are 60 today. And we, what you have is you have an aging population. Um, you also, in most cases, have a more affluent population. Well, age and affluency create a decrease in DIY and an increase in do it for me. And so Depot has made a, a huge transition um, in terms of, of who their target target customer is and where that how they serve that customer. Also, uh, we didn't really have it was pure DIY, so we didn't have an installed sales program. But uh, if you look at today, uh, there's many different ways that you can uh, have your your project not only designed and procured and delivered, but actually installed as well, working with the Home Depot group. So, um, so you're right. It, it has made a lot of changes, 
and it's because it's a learning organization and that goes back to culture you know you can have culture that puts you in a box and you can't change that's a very dysfunctional culture or you can have a learning culture you know if if you look at the history of retailing you know look at when I was when I was going into the retail business many years ago, there was no question the number one largest retailer in the world was Sears, and today Sears is a bankrupt company. The first nationwide um, discount store in the United States was Kmart. Now, I know you have a Kmart, but that's different Kmart down there. Uh, the Kmart up here was the biggest, and it's gone. Um, the first uh, the first uh, big box. Uh, uh, sporting goods store, Sports Authority, created the industry. They're gone. Toys R Us created the toy industry. They're gone. All these people invented their store, defined what that market was, grew like crazy, and then died because they had a culture that said, you know what? We've got the right formula right now, and we don't want change. Um, in fact, we want, we want to keep things the same. We, we don't want those crazy merchants to start screwing up their business. We don't want any surprises in the, this quarter. Um, and so we're not going to risk any new idea. We're not going to allow any chaos in the company that, that might actually create some good, some good outcomes. And the result is they kept opening the same stores for year after year after year. Those stores were stale. They were unexciting, and eventually the customers lost interest in them, and they found other places that would be more exciting. So, uh, so change is um, there's only there's only one constant, and that's change. And um, and you have to have a company that, like I say, is a learning culture that will accept change. And in order to do that, you have to be willing to um, experiment, and you have to have some successes. And guess what? As you experiment, you're going to have some failures. And you have to be willing to have that kind of uh, environment where, you're, where you allow uh, uh, experiments, where you allow new ideas, and you accept a certain amount of failures. Uh, you know, Home Depot went through a very difficult period, uh, and you'll read about it in the book. Um, at the end of the first 20 years, the original founders, Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank, left the company, and a new CEO came in from General Electric. His name was Bob Nardelli. And the GE culture was one of um, command from above. And that whole idea of decentralization was an anathema to, to anybody from General Electric. And so, uh, so the, under this, for a period of seven years, the culture was pretty much turned upside down because uh, it wasn't okay to try something new and fail. In fact, if you failed, you were gone. Um, and, and as a result, um, during that seven-year period, uh, Home Depot lost market share. During that seven-year period, even though their sales were increasing as they opened more and more stores, they were in that same um, downward spiral that, the, that Sears and Kmart and, and uh, uh, Toys R Us, all those were in, in that 
yeah, they were opening more stores and that created more sales. But if you looked at what was happening in the company, uh, it was disintegrating. Hmm. And the stock market showed that. And so at the end of seven years, uh, the board finally took action and, and Nardelli left. And uh, a new uh, uh, CEO uh, took over, uh, also from General Electric, strangely enough, but with a completely different attitude, a, a different attitude of uh, stopping where they were and listening to the employees, listening to the associates, and listening to them talk about how did it used to be, how is it now, and what is our problem, and how can we change it? And um, and he re-embraced re, re many of those um, principles that the company used during those first 20 years to establish that right culture, to, to establish a, 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 uh, a, an organization that was willing to change and could change. And, um, and so since that period, uh, Depot has regained its strength in the market and has, has uh, 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 consistently consistently uh, grown and, and, uh, and outperformed uh, essentially all the other retailers in its industry. So, um, you know, change is critical. Uh, change requires experimentation and that has some failures and you, you embrace the change, you accept those failures and you move forward and, uh, and you can stay current not only current in the industry, but you can become the leader in the industry. Mm. And a great reminder that anyone that's listening, you know, the power of just an individual. I know that we're talking about the CEO of the organization there or two CEOs, uh, but really at any level in the organization, you know, you, you've done a lot of work with middle managers uh, across across the globe in retail. And, you know, I would argue that they have just as great as ability to impact the culture of a team of an organization as does the CEO. Would you agree? Yeah, they definitely do. And, and uh, you know, one of my pet peeves when it comes to um, a lot of the way most businesses are run today is, is every department or every section of a company uh, has a set of KPIs, key performance indicators. And to me, it's sort of a lazy way of, of uh, doing job reviews because what it does is it 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 takes away the subjective part and turns everything into a number and that makes it easy for you to give your your review the problem is that when you try to set up a, what are the numbers for logistics and what are the numbers for human resources and what are the numbers for store management and what are the numbers for for merchandising if you only look at the numbers for that section what you'll find is by creating that number as the goal, you put every department in the company against each other. The enemy is no longer outside the company. The enemy is now inside the company. Uh, to give you an example, um, uh, the, sto the store knows that it needs to um, have good turnover. But the logistics people know that if they can take a shipment from China and it's coming to the United States, but they can route it through uh, Canada, they're going to save money, but it's going to take an extra three weeks. So the, the, the logistic department says, look how much money we saved on the container. 
Meanwhile, the store is saying, I don't have any merchandise. My customers are going without product. And so now you have conflict inside the company. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, to me, one of the biggest problems in the companies today is that the KPIs are not focused on the customer. They're focused on that selfish goal for that one independent piece of the company. And it's not focused together on the customers. And so what happens is, you do have individual managers in these different areas that could make a huge difference if they would focus on the same goals, but instead they end up with an internal conflict. So yeah, the, the, the middle management has an incredible impact on the, on the ability to satisfy the customer, the ability to like the customer, but too often they've, they've got goals that are, that are counterproductive to taking care of the customer. And that's why mission, as you call it, is so important, right? Because that becomes the guiding star, if I understand correctly, the guiding star for how a decision's made. So if the in your example, if the logistics could save a couple of dollars by routing it through through Canada, but their mission first and foremost is to delight customers, then perhaps they don't make that decision to save a couple of dollars if it means customer delight's not going to happen. That yeah. that's the whole point you're making with mission, right? That that is exactly the point. Uh, you know, the mantra has to be, you know, we will give the customer no reason to ever shop anywhere else, and everybody has to have that goal in mind. Well, being out of stock is a pretty good reason for someone to shop somewhere else. You know? <laughs> well, certainly a way to encourage them to look elsewhere, that's for sure. <laughs> so in the book, Jim, you've got, uh, as you've mentioned, you've got 10 core principles of retail. Uh, principle number one, merchandising is an art of embracing change. Now, you've talked a lot about the need for a learning culture, a learning organization, the importance of being able to try things and sometimes those uh, not being the most successful endeavors, you know, learning through failure at times. But what do you mean by merchandising is an art of embracing change? Because, you know, I'm sure when people hear the term merchandising, they're, they're not necessarily thinking about change. Right. What we know in the retail industry is that there are thousands of variables that are changing on a daily basis. Uh, the, the legal change, there's legal changes, there's competitive changes, there's environmental changes, there's pricing changes, there's vendors changing products, there's vendors going out of business, vendors coming back in. There's, there's, it's a very dynamic business. What you don't want to do, and, and you know, what happened to Sears, what happened to Toys R Us, they set a formula and then they kept that formula. What you have to realize is that, that change has to become um, the mother's milk of your merchandising activities. And what happens, you have, to, you have to know the customer so that by knowing the customer, by really knowing the customer, not, not, not knowing about the customer, but knowing the customer, and having empathy with that customer, you can see the changes in the market and you can initiate changes to respond to that. But what, what you don't have time to do in many cases is to, you know, bring in, you know, consultants and professors and let's do a study, let's do a research and let's figure out what that, what that one formula is. And we'll just, we'll just make this into a scientific uh, endeavor. 
Of course, if you have good data, you should use it. Of course, if you have good data, um, it's very helpful in making a good decision. But it's unlikely in a retail business that you're going to have all the data you need to make that perfect decision. And as a result, you've got to have merchants who are empowered to make decisions, make decisions on what, whatever data they have, but combined with their innate merchandising talent, combined with their empathy for the customer that they've learned by interacting with the customer, that they've learned by working on this floor of the, of the store, by, by, um, by listening to the frontline employees on the store. You have to, you have to not just, if, if all you're going to do is say, well, you know, I, I really, we, we, we really don't know what we should do. There's uh, so many changes. Uh, let, let's do some more studies on this before we make a decision. Well, that's called analysis paralysis. And most often the people in the middle management, they're not looking for more data. They're looking for a decision. Give me a decision. Tell me what direct, what is the mission? What is the, what are we trying to accomplish here? Where are we going to go? How are we going to respond to this new change? So they're not looking for new data. They're looking for a decision. Well, that decision many times needs to come from a merchandising um, uh, talent, merchandising group that can say, you know, we've got enough data that we can combine that with our innate knowledge of the customer, that we can combine that with our natural feel for merchandising, and we can we can now get in front of the curve because what's going to happen in this world is you need speed to market. Think about this. I was talking to my my client in Germany just this, this last week. I said, think about this. How long were you a, a physical store, a, a brick and mortar store? Decades. Well, how long have you been an e-commerce store? Uh, years. Uh, how long have you been involved with COVID? Months. And how, how long have you been involved in the inflation and the shortage of supplies that's now hit us as a result of COVID? Weeks. So what do you see is you go from, from change after change after change, but the change is speeding up faster and faster. And so, and so that's why I say you have to be an artist because you have to take what data you have and you have to combine it with your innate ability, with your feeling for the customer and make decisions to move forward to imp implement that change. And the companies that are the senior management that just says, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to um, get more data before I make a decision, uh, frankly, is, is going to get left uh, left behind uh, because the companies that have aggressive merchants who will take that initiative are, are going to be the ones that take speed to market. They're the ones that are going to win, win the, the, the customer's uh, heart. What, what fantastic insight. And of course, we're just touching the surface of uh, all the insights in, in the book. Uh, Jim, if people want to stay in touch with you, follow your work, get a copy of the book, what's the best place for them to, to visit to, to do that? Well, the best way would just to go to the website. It's breakthroughretailing.com. 
Fantastic. We'll be making sure that there are links to Breakthrough Retailing uh, and how to get a copy of the book on uh, all available formats in the show notes. Uh, But Jim, before we move on to the bonus session, uh, I have two questions to wrap up this part of the show. The first question is, if I'm not in retail, what can I learn from retail? What's one thing I should learn from retail and apply it no matter what industry I'm in? Well, I would say that whatever business you're in, that leadership is going to set the values and demonstrate the behavior that um, is going to create a culture uh, that will install a mission that people can, can grasp onto. And the end result of creating that mission is going to be extraordinary performance by ordinary people. And that was how we always looked at, at our staffing at, at Home Depot was to say, you know what? Um, we don't have to hire the people with the highest education. We don't have to um, um, uh, set uh, big uh, thresholds for people to, to be part of our staff. We just need people who are ordinary people who have a strong work ethic and we will provide them with the mission. We'll provide them with that mission. They'll buy into that mission and you know what? They will exceed, they will, they will perform at exceptional levels. And I, I think that is, the, that is the message I would give to any business is that um, uh, culture drives customer experience that defines your brand and uh, and uh, if, 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 you, if you can get those, if you can uh, get your ordinary people to embrace that mission, um, they're, going to, they're going to take care of the customers and you're going to be successful. Uh, f- fantastic, fantastic. Now, the last question before our bonus round uh, is, I'm in retail. If someone listening today is in retail, what piece of advice would you give them to help them grow their career? Oh, if they're an employee in retail? Mm, yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, my attitude in retail was that um, I always appreciated that I had a job. And I didn't come into my job with a sense of entitlement. And I think that people come into a job with a sense of entitlement are going to always be disappointed. And uh, and in the retail business, uh, what 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 is good about retail is that your performance can immediately show results. And that's what I love about retail is that you see the results very quickly. And so you need to be results focused and uh, earn your position. Uh, don't feel you're entitled to it, but feel like, you know what, I, I, I can earn this position and I'll earn it by, by making the numbers right. And I'll do that by taking care of the customers. <laughs> 